Father, we thank you that you came down to save us. The thought that God would become man in the flesh and condescend to us to save us from the wrath of God is just awesome. So Lord, we are thankful that you have come to us to save us and to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. It can be found on page 808 in the Bible under your seat. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he had saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained for the wise men from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, He was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. My name is Mike. I'm the pastoral resident here at Trinity Community Church. Happy to be here with you this morning. So, um, today's passage is a dark passage um, in two senses of the word. Um, It's dark in that it um, records a very, very dark atrocity done against a group of people. Um, It's also dark in the sense of... um, being sort of, at face value, difficult to understand. There's a lot here that just is very strange. We'll get into it. Um, I think that sometimes as we, when we approach the Bible, we, we approach it with the question, what should I do? Um, and we, we tend to kind of ask that of, of every single passage, regardless of, of which passage it is and what, what it's actually there for. Um, I think today the, the question that we're asking of the, the question, uh, asking of the passage is more the question, who is Jesus and who are we? Um, and when we understand those two things, we'll begin to understand what we're here to do. Um, 
it's going to be a weedy passage. Uh, it's very detailed in a lot of things. Um, and so uh, we're just going to get into it and um, look to see what the Lord has for us in his word today. But if you'll join me in prayer as I get started, that'd be great. Lord Jesus, we, um, today we're considering um, very, very grim things. Um, I just consider the, uh, the Advent reading, and how it could not have been more perfect. Um, Lord, a light has, has shone in the darkness. I pray, Lord, that as we consider the darkness this morning, um, we would come out the other end seeing the light. Amen. So, um, <clears throat> UNICEF, uh, which is the branch of the United Nations that looks out for the welfare of children in developing nations, they released um, a, a press release this year just looking back on 2017. Um, and the, the press release is extremely sobering. Um, 2017, uh, in, in terms of what UNICEF was researching, it was a year of profound violence against children. Um, sorry. Just a, at a shocking scale. Um, so just reading a couple off of the, off of the press release. Um, in Iraq and Syria, um, children were used as human shields. Sorry. They were targeted by snipers. In Myanmar, the Rohingya children suffered and witnessed shocking and widespread violence as they were attacked and driven from their homes in Rakhine State. In Nigeria and Cameroon, Boko Haram forced at least 135 children to act as suicide bombers. Um, in Yemen, after a thousand days of fighting, left at least 5,000 children dead or injured, according to verified data. The actual number is expected to be much higher. Um, in fact, in Yemen, there's been a, a man-made famine that inevitably targets the most vulnerable. Um, I'd rather not read on, but it goes on to, to say the same in Myanmar and South Sudan and, and others that this year has been a year of horrifying violence against children. And so it, as we look back on 2017 to consider this kind of large-scale, shocking, grim acts of atrocity, we're not even getting in, in this report to, to what we've seen in the UK in the, the bombing at the Ariana Grande concert that put an end to many kids, or the Sutherland Springs shooting in the church in Texas that ended the lives of children. That... It's been a year of horrifying violence. So I, I want us to kind of approach this text asking the question, what hope do we have in a world in which such pure evil exists? Because that's ultimately what we're talking about this morning, right? We're talking about pure evil. And I think that as we really dig into this passage, we're going to discover that Matthew does actually believe that there's hope in the midst of pure evil. And what we see is that the redemptive plan of God is not slowed down at all by evil, 
but rather that no evil can stop God's redemptive plan. No evil can stop God's redemptive plan. So I think the best way to unpack this passage is just to walk through the story. And it sort of divides easily up into three movements, and each one ends with a word from the prophets that Matthew sees being fulfilled and completed in Christ. So it kind of divides up evenly. We'll just go through, um, and as we'll see, it does get kind of weedy in how Matthew approaches the Old Testament. So just bear with me through it. And, you know, as we walk through it, just be keeping in mind this morning's question. What hope is there in a world full of pure evil? So as a refresher of where we kind of left off, because it's been a couple weeks since Everett uh, preached on the previous passage, the wise men, the magi, had come from the east to pay homage to the king of the Jews, but on the way they ran into the would-be king of the Jews, Herod. Um, and they told him what they had, what they had shown up for. Um, so Everett went over a lot of this history of how Herod came to be king, so I'm not going to repeat it all. Um, but just remember that Herod has this kingdom. He is ruling over Judea because Rome has given him this post. He has no actual rightful claim to the throne as king of the Jews. Um, Herod is more or less a puppet king. More than that, he's a vicious tyrant um, and deeply paranoid. So when he hears from the Magi that they've come to worship the king of the Jews, what he hears is that there's a competitor to the throne. And so he begins to, to ask questions of the, the Magi and ask questions of his advisors and experts in the law in order to find out more information about um, the Jewish Messiah. So I want you to notice something here. Um, Herod is a believer, not in the sense that he has sworn allegiance to, to Jesus in, in any way, but rather he, he actually does believe that this baby being born is the Messiah, that he is the king of the Jews. Herod isn't out for the baby's life because the baby is not a rightful king to the th- you know, claim to the throne. He's out for the baby's life because this baby has a claim to the throne. So, so notice that this is an intentional um, attempt to stop God's redemptive plan in, in Christ. Herod is knowingly trying to kill Messiah so that he can keep his throne. So it's a wild dynamic here. But we have to see that Matthew is actually setting things up so that we read this whole coming passage as a competition between kingdoms, the clash of two kings, that Herod, one king, has shown up to try to bring his kingdom to disrupt the Messiah. So this is a competition between two kings. We have Herod, the puppet king, and on the other side we have the son of David, the son of God. So the first movement is verses 13 through 15. I'll just reread them as a refresher. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. So the wise men depart. Um, Joseph is visited by an angel in a dream that the angel tells him to, to rise, take the child and his mother, go to Egypt. And then you see that repetition in the text. Joseph does exactly what the angel says. Um, he ri- rises, takes the child and his mother, goes to Egypt. He goes by night. 
Um, that probably would have been especially dangerous, um, where street lamps are absent, bandits are not. Uh, and so it would have been kind of a, like a harrowing escape in the middle of the night. But that's not really where Matthew draws our, uh, our, our attention. Instead, he wants us to notice that they flee to Egypt. So that brings us to prophecy number one, which is in verse 15. Out of Egypt I called my son. So we typically think of prophecy as a prediction of a future event, um, and then that event comes to pass, and it was, it was prophecy. But we're going to find something really, really different here. Like if we, if we approach this verse, assuming that, and we've never read the original verse from Hosea, we'll just think, oh, okay, there's a prophecy somewhere in the Bible about the Messiah coming out of Egypt, and here it's fulfilled. So uh, I think in your pew Bibles, it's page 757. It's Hosea 11. Um, Hosea 11.1. That's the verse that Matthew is quoting. I'll I'll read it to you, but it doesn't hurt to to have it open as well, because I'll I'll eventually reference some of the context. The verse is, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, now hold on. That's explicitly talking about Israel. So what's going on here? So think for a moment about what Israel was called to do. Israel was actually God's answer to evil in the world. If you're familiar with Israel's story, Israel saw the Exodus, which was when, you know, for a time, Israel was in slavery in Egypt, and God, through a number of miraculous acts, Um, and through the leadership of Moses, calls them out of Egypt and brings them um, to Mount Sinai, where they're sort of brought together as a new people, the people of God. And this new people of God were going to be a blessing to the nations. They were going to extend God's redemptive plan in the world. So hear that, that like Israel is called together in order to begin this massive redemptive project for the entire world. But they fail, right? Israel turns away from their vocation. They turn away from God. They rebel. And in fact, it's interesting. If you go on to read further in that passage in Hosea, that's exactly what Hosea is talking about. But the Lord, through Hosea, is talking. It's this tender, kind of grieving passage where he's talking about, I, like teaching Ephraim, or um, you know, one of the tribes of Israel, to, to walk as a, as a little boy, where it's, it's all this poetic imagery of, of God fostering and, and tenderly loving Israel, and then they turn away from him. And there's his resolve to turn them over to the consequences of their rebellion. But then also he, he comes around to this moment where he says that I can't give them up. I will restore. So God promises to bring restoration to his people despite the fact that they have turned away from him. So now come back to how Matthew's using this. This is one of the most important keys to understanding not just Matthew, but all four of the Gospels. It's a hugely important thing. Jesus is the new Israel. Jesus is somehow re-upping the history of Israel. That In the story of Jesus, as these Gospel writers are reflecting on his life, they're realizing that God has started to tell the story of Israel again in the person of Jesus that he is the new and ultimate one who will push the redemptive plan of God forward. God's redemptive plan is being moved forward in Jesus, and he will not fail. 
So, so this, is, this is hugely key. He, with Jesus comes the rulership of God into this world. The gospel writers truly think that with Jesus comes the kingdom of heaven. So how does that make sense? Um, it's, it's not prophecy in the sense of someone predicting that something will come about and then there you have it, it happens. It's something much richer and deeper than that. It's, it's wrapped up in the movement of God's redemptive plan over the course of the entire story of the Bible and culminating in Jesus. So the failure of God's people is not enough to stop God's redemptive plan. I think what we're going to find eventually is that Jesus isn't just standing in for Israel. That because Israel was the hope of all of us in some sense, Israel existed to be God's redemption of all of humanity. When Jesus shows up, he's not just standing in for Israel, he's standing in for all of us. And so all our hopes are resting on Jesus um, succeeding where Israel failed. And that gets unpacked more and more throughout the Gospel of Matthew, so I'm not going to go hugely into that right now. But that's definitely the point that Matthew's making here. Out of Egypt, he called his son. God called his son Israel out of Egypt, and now we see the actual true son of God being called out of Egypt, re-upping the history of Israel. So then we move into to movement two, verses 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, or, or just meaning that they gave him a sort of time frame of when the Messiah would, would have been born, according to when the star showed up. So he kills all the two-year-olds and under. Then was, well, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So there's a number of terrible atrocities recorded in Scripture, but this one especially um, gets me. And I think that it's right for us to be especially horrified by atrocities done to children because they are not responsible for bringing those acts on themselves. Throughout Scripture, God is particularly passionate against pain brought on the vulnerable. That when somebody is defenseless, when somebody is unable to, to defend themselves, to resist, and violence is still brought against them, that makes God really mad. And it should make us really, really mad too. Like as Christians, just because we have a great hope in Christ— doesn't mean that suddenly we look at the world with rose-tinted glasses. We don't become optimists. We become hopeful because we know where this whole story is going. But when we hear about atrocities, we of all people who know what God made this world for, we of all people should be grieved. And so here we have Herod targeting the most vulnerable in society, these children. He kills all the boys to and under, um, knowing the population of the region, or an estimate, this was probably about 20 kids. And then Matthew quotes another word from a prophet, this time from Jeremiah. That's verse 18. To read again, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This verse is just as tricky as the first one. It is not a prophetic, like a, a Messiah prophecy. 
It's actually, when it shows up, it's, it's one verse in a long section of Jeremiah, this long discourse of chapters 30 and 31, where God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah to a group of Israelites who are about to go into exile. So they're being rounded up, herded together, um, to all be moved into Babylon. And the section is actually incredibly hopeful. It's, it's this word of comfort and this is the one verse of sadness in this long discourse of hope. So what it looks like is that um, in Jeremiah 40, the exiles are rounded up, and they're rounded up in Ramah. And so what, what this verse is picturing, here, here's where it gets tricky. So like Bethlehem and Ramah, they're not related in any way. I mean, the, the two towns are not related. Ramah is a town that came from one of the tribes originating from Rachel, so, which is why she's mentioned in the verse. Bethlehem is derived from the tribe of Judah. The only relationship is that they're both of Israel. But when Jeremiah brings it up, he's poetically imagining this, this mother generations before somehow having the sense that a great grievous thing will happen to her people in mourning over the loss. And so it's, it's this very poetic image So what's Matthew doing with this verse? I think he's pointing out that just as it was in the exile, Israel is suffering injustice from foreign powers again. That Herod, just like Babylon, is coming against the people of God and committing grievous atrocities against them. That there is again a cause for great mourning. And if you continue to read in that that chapter in Jeremiah, it's, it's very much similar to the passage that's quoted in Hosea, God promises them, I will bring justice against those who have hurt you. I will restore what has been broken. I will fix what has been broken, and I will bring you home. And then eventually it goes into the very familiar passage about the new covenant, where God will again bring them together as a people, as a new people. And so I think what, what Matthew is saying is that there's something happening in this verse that is grievous, and there's something happening in this verse that is deeply hopeful. And in fact, you know, it works on another level too, this, this section, because Herod isn't the first evil king that has done this particular atrocity to the Israelites. There's another evil king who casts a much greater shadow in the Hebrew imagination. I'm talking about Pharaoh. The Herod is actually the second one to initiate a massacre of infants among the the Hebrew people. And in that situation, God calls up a leader who will lead his people into salvation. He calls up Moses. And that through Moses, God is going to restore his people, call them out of the darkness, bring them into a new community. And in the same way, God is raising up another savior. Just as it was with the massacre in Egypt, a savior will be spared the killing. A savior will grow up to lead his people out of the darkness. So we start to see that there's hope in this passage that no act of evil can stop God's redemptive plan. And so we get to movement number three, which is uh, verses 19 to the end of the chapter. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. 
But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And so it's kind of deja vu. Angel appears again, tells Joseph to do something. He does it exactly the way that the angel told him to do it. And he goes to, he's told, go to Israel, return to Israel. So he's thinking, okay, the prophets say that the Messiah will emerge out of Bethlehem. So it seems like he, he makes a beeline back to Bethlehem, and instead the angel shows up and redirects him. Said Herod's son, who was actually every bit maybe even more of a tyrant than, than Herod was, his son is ruling in Judea, so you're not going to go to Bethlehem. Instead, you're going to go to Galilee. So this is like rural country sort of place. Galilee is very much the country. And so not only is he going to the country, he's going to kind of the most country town in the country. Nazareth is as podunk as you can get. I mean, it's, it's utter obscurity. So they, they go north into Galilee and, and hide themselves in Nazareth, this little backwater town. And then Matthew says, this is to fulfill that the, that the, uh, the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. Okay, this is a toughie. There is no verse that says that in the Bible. This is one of the, the weirdest things in Matthew. We don't know exactly what he's referring to. I, I mean, people have have speculated about what exactly is, is being talked about here when he, there's no prophecy that's, you know, anywhere that says the Messiah will be called a Nazarene, but there is something going on here. Um, you know, he, he refers to the prophets, so plural. This probably would have referred to the book of the minor prophets, the 12 smaller prophets. I think what, what Matthew is saying is that throughout the scriptures, there's this trend about the, the, pro, the prophecies about the Messiah, there's this idea that he will be a man of obscurity. That there will be nothing about him that we would recognize as Messiah. That's him right there. Like, that's not going to happen when he shows up. Instead, there, there will be no beauty about him that we would be attracted to him. And so, I think Matthew is kind of like doing a little bit of wordplay here. So, in the same way that we would say, that guy's a Cretan. What are we saying when we say that? We're saying that he's rude, brash, ignorant, whatever. Um, in the same way, Matthew's kind of doing a turn of phrase here. He's saying that the Messiah will be a Nazarene. He'll be obscure, backwater. He's going to come with an accent, you know. But for real, like, I mean, the Galileans, they had, they had an accent. Um, we learned that later on in, um, when Peter is recognized for his Galilean accent. Jesus comes with um, backwater written all over him, podunk. And so uh, the family and Jesus, they, they go to this obscure town um, that also kind of had a bad reputation, um, and they hide there. It is the least expected place that you'd, you'd go looking for a Messiah. They end up in Nazareth. And so that's where Jesus remains until his public ministry begins. Uh, Matthew does not record anything of the years between this moment and the moment John the Baptist comes preparing the way of the Lord. We know nothing about what happens after Jesus ends up in Nazareth. Um, in the Gospel of Luke, there are some things recorded about some visits to Jerusalem. But from now until then, he's in obscurity. But we know that when Jesus does reemerge, with him comes the kingdom of heaven. So again, this whole, this whole passage is framed as a conflict between kings. What is it actually going to look like when Jesus reemerges to make war on the kingdoms of evil. And what we see is that when Jesus actually takes the gauntlet off, 
with the kingdoms of evil. It doesn't, he doesn't play by the rules of the kingdoms of evil. He does not use violence. He doesn't show up at like a warlord. He doesn't come with revolution. Instead, Jesus brings the kingdom of heaven. He brings the way of life of the, of the kingdom of heaven. That he comes restoring people through his miracles to the way their lives were meant to be. Pushing back the darkness around him and never playing by the rules of the kingdom of, kingdoms of evil. In fact, the gospel writers see Jesus' greatest moment of victory as being the cross itself. And it's a mysterious thing. I can't totally claim to understand it yet. But it, it's blaringly obvious to me in Scripture more and more that the cross is seen as the ultimate enthronement of the Messiah. That when he finally does take on a crown, it's a crown of thorns. And in giving himself on the cross, he draws all evil to himself. He absorbs all evil. So that in the same way that Israel was, was often spoken of in the prophets as being this nation that would suffer as a means to redeem the world, Jesus suffers as a means of redeeming the world. That all evil is ultimately broken by his act of taking its greatest sting. And he goes to his grave in victory. And so the resurrection becomes this thing where we, we realize, oh my gosh, he actually was who he said he was. He actually was the king. He actually did overthrow the powers. The resurrection is, is what we ultimately trust in. It's the proof that Jesus won. So it's interesting UNICEF, they released their report on the 28th, so that was Thursday. And I don't think this was intentional at all, but um, the 28th in many Christian, Christian traditions is a, uh, is a feast day called the Feast of the Innocents. And it's a day when many Christians come together to remember the slaughter of the, in, of the infants in Bethlehem. It's interesting to me that UNICEF releases their report on the same day that many Christians are remembering similar atrocities. So what do we say to these mothers and fathers? Whether in Yemen or Myanmar or Bethlehem. What hope can actually be offered to people who have seen their babies taken up as human shields to absorb, absorb gunfire? What can we actually say? And, and honestly, I, I think that for, for us, the right answer is silence a lot of times. That when we face the darkest grief, our right Christian response is to clap our hand over our mouth or to, to lift up our voice and wail. Evil is evil. And we should recognize it as such. But one day, when grief finally becomes quiet, is there hope to be found or is there only desolation? I think what we find in this passage is that there is actually hope. What we see in this passage is something very different. The, the answer that's given to these mothers and fathers isn't, one day the evil done against you will all make sense. Now, don't get me wrong. God sovereignly weaves evil into good. That doesn't mean that the evil itself was a good. The answer is, don't worry, one day you'll see why your baby had to die. 
Evil will not come to make sense. Evil is senseless, and Jesus has shown up to defeat it. The answer to those mothers and fathers who have lost babies to great violence is that good will overcome, that good has overcome. Our hope going into the new year is not that 2018 will somehow be better for these children than 2017. Instead, hope is found when we recognize that Jesus is even now reigning over this world and that no evil can stop the redemptive plan of God. No evil. In that very second, when Herod's foot soldiers were breaking down the first door of a house in Bethlehem, at that very second, help was on the way. It was being carted off to Egypt. And with it was coming the kingdom of God. Christmas is this announcement that with Jesus, the rulership of God has broken into the world and declared war against the kingdoms of evil and violence and bloodshed. God has become man to wipe away the tears of the mothers and fathers in Myanmar and Yemen and Sutherland Springs and Bethlehem. He himself will do it. Jesus has shown up, and he has overthrown the powers. He already has, and that's a mystery. And Matthew will get more into that. Evil is broken, Trinity. No matter how it may seem to you, and it will seem dark, Jesus has won, and evil does not have a chance. We are on the way to redemption. Nothing can stop God's plan. If you'll pray with me. Lord Jesus, we, um, we begin uh, with grief. We hate what has happened this year to these children. We hate it. And God, receive our prayer as solidarity with those who, who are mourning injustice. And God, help us to see the victory of Christ. Lord, we trust you and praise you that nothing can stop your redemptive plan that what you started in Christ will be finished. We beg you to finish it soon. Amen.